internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I have to say I'm genuinely super excited to be joined by Mr. Gilbert King today. Uh, Gilbert, I have, because of this show, I listen to true crime podcasts all week, every week (laughs) to prep for these interviews. And, And I enjoy most of them, but yours is the first I've had in a long time where I listened to the first episode and just couldn't stop and binged the entire thing. I put off all sorts of work I was supposed to be doing. Uh, so that I could listen to your podcast. Well, amazing job on Bone Valley. That's really nice of you, Bob. I, I don't mean meet too many people who totally binge it that way. So good for you. Oh, I couldn't stop. And of course, we're joined by Erica. Uh, are you back home, Erica? That looks like a that looks like a young person closet. Yes, I am back in these tiny closet. <laughs> yeah. I know the closet week, well. <laughs> yeah, we interviewed Jason a couple weeks ago, and and he also was in a closet. I felt left out being the only. Yeah, yeah, that's how I got my idea. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> oh, uh, so Gilbert, uh, before we start talking about this this podcast, I want to talk a little bit about you. Um, so you, you live in New York city now. Are you from New York? Pretty much. I've been here for like the last 35 years. Uh, I'm from upstate New York. So I consider myself a New Yorker now. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I like to consider myself a New Yorker after I spend a couple days there. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> it's one of my favorite places to visit. Yeah. Um, and you, before the podcast, you've had quite a career. You've, uh, you've, you've won a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. I mean, mostly I do I do writing. I write books. So I'm not even like a, a journalist or a newspaper writer. I, I've mostly been doing books for like the last 20 years. And um, it's kind of interesting how this started because I went down to, to do this story on Leo Schofield's case thinking maybe uh-huh. I'll just write like a long feature or something like that. And uh, I ended up just saying, you know what? Everybody's still alive. I'm kind of not used to that. I'm used to dealing uh-huh. with like documents and cases from the 1940s where everybody's dead, um, mm-hmm. which I, I don't mind. It's actually less complicated in a lot of ways. But uh, sure. but um, yeah, I, I mostly consider myself a narrative nonfiction writer um, who's just sort of like stumbled into the world of podcasting. Yeah, well, and that's so many people nowadays, and those are becoming like the most popular podcast. Seems like people who come from a print background. Yeah, you know, I think there's a sort of a sort of a structural form of storytelling that we're used to. So it's not just the reporting and the investigation, which I love. I, it's actually the most fun part for me. As there's a lot of times I finish like my investigations for the books that I write, and I'm like. Oh, now I got to write this thing. I just feel like I did all the work already. I know the story. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh no, you actually have to write it. And it's just kind of the same way with podcasting. But um, yeah, you know, I think it really does help when you come from a um, sort of a the discipline of writing. You understand transitions and structure, and um, you know, I, my, so my podcast is probably a little less conversational than ones that you're used to listening to, but just because I like to have everything written out on the page. Yeah. 
But you know, you captured some of those great moments though between you. Uh, um, Kelsey is Kelsey. Yeah, the one that was Kelsey, traveling right. with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there there are some amazing moments that you got. Were you guys? And I was going to ask you how you captured. Were you just rolling all the time? Yeah. Because there's some really <laughs> organic moments where you guys are like, "What the fuck is going exactly. on?" Exactly. I was just going to say, I was like, I just finished episode four on my way home like a few minutes ago, and that's the episode that ends with I think it's Kelsey saying. Who the fuck is Jeremy Scott? <laughs> right, right. That was, and it's, uh, so per- it's a perfect ending to the episode. <laughs> yeah, and that, that was sort of like our stepping off point because, you know, talking about like narrative structure, like, you know, Jeremy Scott's a big part of the story. And I had originally envisioned like some kind of parallel narrative where you see a little bit of both people and then ultimately merge. And I think that would have worked really well in a book. It doesn't work in a podcast so much <laughs> because you're you know, you you don't want to give away too much. So there's different challenges that come up with making a podcast. But in terms of like the, that kind of spontaneous stuff, we were constantly rolling our tape because we didn't know what we were doing. So we were just told, just leave it on. And anytime you're planning something or thinking of something. So we have a lot of garbage and stuff you'd ne- that would never see the air. But then I think our producers got a hold of it and they kind of liked some of the things that we were saying, trying to figure things out. And so this is a really good moment. It sort of defines who you guys are in a very casual way. And it's got all your salty language in there. So we love it. <laughs> Yeah, right. Everybody loves salty language in a podcast. <laughs> yeah, we have no choice. <laughs> yeah. But man, that's such a tough job. So I have a very small operation for, you know, I do the show and I do another show called Truth and Justice, which is an investigative series, long form. And I, I, I do that, but I I produce stuff myself. And it's a <laughs> I always have these great ideas of we're going to roll tape the whole time. And there's all these great conversations and then I get home and I'm like, I have 20 hours to sort through to figure out where these cool moments were. So I'm just going to skip it because I got the, the episodes due in two days. It's really so. exhausting. I know what you mean. Yeah. I don't even like to go back and listen to it. I'm like, I don't, it happened. I don't want to hear it anymore. You know, but, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I think I've told the story on here before, but there was one time my, my old producer and editor, Mike and I were, we were out on the road working on a case out in Illinois somewhere. And we had one of those like organic conversations where I was like a me like, oh, that would be really cool. Kind of sets the scene. There are all these windmills, you know, in Southern Illinois. And we were just talk chatting about those. And I realized, oh, shit, the, the recorder's dead. And then so then I had this brilliant idea. We'll just recreate the conversation for two guys who aren't actors. Yeah. And it was the most cringy, horrible oh, thing. I know. Gee, Bob, what are all these windmills for? What do you guys <laughs> terrible? That's so funny you say that. Cause I remember, I didn't know, really know podcasts that well. Kelsey knew them a little bit more than I did. Uh-huh. And I remember just one time we were at the gas station, you know, where, where the, close to where the Michelle's Mazda was found. And uh-huh. I was trying to like, let's go there and let's see it. And it, again, we didn't know what we were doing. And I started talking, and Kelsey just looking at me. She's like, "You're using like a newscaster's voice. This is not a news show." And I, I was just talking the wrong way. We're here at the scene of, you know, like what the hell is that? Nobody right. told me how to do this. I'm just. <laughs> no, well, your producers did a fantastic job of pulling out those those, those very real say, moments. That's for sure. Yeah, because it, it, it was. I mean, it, it's your podcast. The way you produce it is like the way that I always envision. It's like it's like the perfect way that I would love to create a podcast, listen to a podcast. So I was, I was just captivated by the storytelling mixed in with the interviews. You know, the sound design's amazing, and then cut in with the organic, real conversation. It's just it, it, for your first jump into the podcasting space. 
you really knocked it out of the park. Yeah, and I will just say that that we did a really nice job, Kelsey and I, on reporting all of this. But but in terms of podcasting and how it would sound, like I looked at one of my old scripts, my first script before we even started working with, I started to write it out, and it's, I can't even look at it now. It's so terrible and so stilted, <laughs> and it really took like our producer Kara Cornhaber and Britt um, Spangler, who came in. She was the sound designer. And the way these two just worked it out and worked out a flow, like it was just something that was way beyond Kelsey and I. So it was really our team that really put this together and made it sound the way it sounds. We had the reporting and the story, but I credit all of them for, for just making it sound good because I, I would have been clueless without them. Well, they did an incredible job. And, and they, so speaking of the team behind you, um, how, you know, we had, we had Jason on. Is it going to be, two, is it going to air two weeks before this one, Erica? I think so. Yes. Okay. So, um, so, so I told Jason that I was going to get your version of how did you get, how did you go from getting the story to connecting with Jason and Lava for Good podcast? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what his story is, but I'll tell you what I remember of mine. Uh, you know, we had, <laughs> we'd had a couple false starts. We, we, we were moving around trying to get this thing placed and it, you know, it wasn't really working out for us, but we kept on reporting, kept on, you know, going with the story and ultimately I had known who Jason was. We were going to do an event together um, a couple of years earlier, and we talked on the phone, and I've been listening to his podcast, and I remember just thinking, Jason, you've done all these amazing interviews with, with the Exonerated. You need a narrative of a guy who's not been exonerated yet. And yeah. it, honestly, it was like the easiest thing I've ever dealt with. He's like, yeah, I'll put you in touch with my people. Let's get this going. And it, you know, it was just like that happened that fast. And I, I was just amazed by it. And it really was for us the perfect team because you know that we believed in their mission. They believed in the story that we were trying to tell. Mm-hmm. They put together this beautiful team for us and we got really lucky. So I don't know if that matches Jason's version, but that's how I remember it. <laughs> That's pretty close. Okay. <laughs> he gives, of course, throws a lot more credit your way. But you know, I know Jason well enough to know that he's that he, uh, you know, when when he heard an opportunity to tell a story that needed to be told, he was he made the decision to make sure it get it got done. Yeah, he really walks the walk. You know, he he's out there and and he's just doing so much in this space. Um, he's somebody I, I really deeply admire, and I was just so glad we ended up working together. Yeah, that's great. So now, when, by the time you got to him, you had already decided to make this into a podcast. Yeah, we we pivoted fairly early in the in the research. Like, so as we were researching, we went in with like a crappy Zoom recorder on our very first interview with Leo because we didn't think uh-huh. we were doing a podcast. And it's kind of amazing how much of that stuff we ended up using in the podcast from that very yeah. first interview because it's like when we first met, we got like three hours with him, and even though it was done in this junky tape, uh, somehow Britt was able to save it. It sounded good. Um, you know, not as good as when we got better equipment and learned how to do this. But the first, you know, our first interview was just so raw and so interesting. Um, and that's when we started to really pivot. We came out of there saying, you know, Leo's a great storyteller. Um, Kelsey was listening to a lot of podcasts. I was starting to listen to him too. And I said, you know, everyone's alive and they're willing to talk to us. We should, we should really just make this a podcast. And it was a challenge, but it was one that we were up for at the time. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's done so well, and Leo is a great storyteller. Do you find you're not really a journalist, like you said, you're more, you're an author. One thing that I've struggled with from time to time in doing these stories, like like this one, dealing with people that are still in prison that have been wrongfully incarcerated, have you struggled at all uh, with with making emotional connections or friendships with Leo, and then and then try. I, I've always, when I first started doing it, I was like, whatever, you know, Ed Eights was the first big case that I did. And it was like, you know, we've become friends. He's my, he's my friend. And then I felt like 
it's it affects my journalistic integrity. I'm not a journalist either, um, but I've kind of you know I play one on the radio. <laughs> but you, you know, do you ever struggle with that, or are we able to kind of keep those boundaries where they need to be? You know, I do think about it all the time because it's something that's kind of new to me. Again, like I. You know, I've done some journalism. I use journalism when I write books, but I'm not like a trained journalist. And so, you know, I think one of the things is once you get involved with people, you start, you know, becoming close to them and attached to them. And like, you know, Mm -hmm. I want to see them get, you know, post-conviction relief. If you start believing in the story and believing in Leo's innocence, like, I don't want to see him sit in prison. Like, I, I, how can I not? I know his wife. I know his child. I know all the people around him now. Everyone believes in their innocence. I believe in his innocence. So, yeah, I do struggle with it. But, you know, on the other hand, I think there's some limitations to what journalism can really do. I, I think, you know, we use journalism to report on these stories. But once you have it all together, you know, you have a story to tell. And I feel like the one thing I really wanted to do with this story was not really report it in a straight out journalism story, but use more of a nar- narrative nonfiction style where it's mm-hmm. very authoritative. Um, you know, like I've done a lot of the work of a lot of the research. So I didn't want to be puzzling that out on the air so that, what do you think we should do with this clue? And maybe this, and mm-hmm. I, I, I tried to want to avoid all that kind of making of the sausage kind of thing and just do a more authoritative, uh, narrative vision that that goes all the way through. So it's a little bit different, but I, f- I feel like it saved us a lot of time and enabled us to be just tighter with our storytelling so that we didn't have to explain a yeah. lot. You could sort of just say, all right, trust him. He read the appeal. This is what the appeal said. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have to get into it for 10 minutes. Um, and so there's a lot of structuring that I think that was sort of more more in common with um, you know narrative nonfiction or even like an audio book than, th- than it was a straight up true crime podcast. Yeah, and that's definitely the feeling that you get from it. It was just there's so many similarities that I when you guys were talking, you particularly were talking about kind of the feelings you were feeling when you're realizing that when at the end of the interview you get to go home and you get to go, do, you know, you have all these freedoms and you're realizing. I remember that with Ed the first time I visited a prisoner, and we just had this great two hour long conversation, and then you know he, I watched him walk back into the cage, and mm-hmm. I was leaving. And, and the l- lawyer that was with me, we were figuring out what to go, where to go for lunch, and it just all of a sudden hits you, like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, he doesn't get to do that ever. Yeah. Like to, even to decide when to eat, much less what to eat. Yeah, I've had exactly those same moments where I just like thinking, like you know, because in a way, when you're an inmate, you know, everything is decided for you. There's nothing unexpected, like. 5 a.m. This is your count. This is, you know, all of these things that are structured and almost like it's, it's sort of like they're treated a little bit like children with the scheduling. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that, that's part of it. Just, you know, when you talk to Leo and you see how thoughtful and, uh, and really well-spoken and articulate and intelligent and everything like that. And then you realize, oh, this guy's going to be locked up now. It just really sort of hits you in a really strange way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I don't think you can describe it unless you you experience it. And and so for me, listening to you is is like it's almost like ah, someone's someone else that understands what that's like to walk away and 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 just for that to just hit you like a ton of bricks in the face. Yeah, in a way that makes sense logically, but you, for some reason, at least for me, I never saw it coming until it happened. Right, and then it was just just it, it's just crippling. Yeah. To, it, to, to when you feel it, I feel it too. And I, I th- you know, like, it's like one of the things, like, after a while, like, Leo and I started hugging, and you know, it's like it became like a much closer, you know, he's mm-hmm. putting all his hope on, on 
you know, us with this story, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a it's a strange responsibility to have. But you know, like I I feel it too. I mean, the guy every time I talk to him on the phone, he makes me cry. And you yeah. know, it's just like because I'm I'm in the moment and I know what it's like to not. I don't know what it's like to be where he is, but I know what it's like to be talking to somebody and and knowing that you know I'm going to go off and go have a dinner somewhere and 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 he's just going to be locked in a cage. And that that part just kills me every time. Especially when he says something profound, which he always does. Yeah. Well, and you just touched on something else too. Another thing that people don't realize or expect is the response. You for me, like I didn't realize until I got into it too deep to realize the responsibility that comes with hope. Um, that you know, I, and I've had that time and time again through twelve seasons of Truth and Justice, where those people that are incarcerated they put so much hope that your story is going to be the thing to finally right this wrong. And it's 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 a burden you wear everywhere you go. Yeah, that's been another thing that I think if you would have told me about it earlier, it would make it. You know, I would love to have known some of these things because you're you're in it for life with these people. Yeah. Even 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 if you get them out, you know, like even if something happens, a miracle that you can actually get some relief and they're out of prison. You know, when you start one of these stories, there you're in it for life, and and that was what, what was sort of new to me, and I had to be ready for that because you know you just cannot abandon people and they have thoughts and concerns mm-hmm. and you know like I don't know if I should do this interview. Should I say, you know, should I talk about things that are frustrating me and like I you know these are really personal decisions and you know, it's it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, yeah, it really is, and it and it, it weighs for, for me especially really heavy on you know I've still got guys. You know, we've been luckily enough to have a few of the guys that we've worked with have gotten out, but then there's a few that are still in, and I talk to them occasionally, and it's it's tough. Hope hope's a, is a dangerous thing sometimes mm-hmm. because a lot of times I think that the people that are in those situations, they're able to, at least the way I see it, they're able to cope because they've gone through this process, the stages of grief, and get to an, a point where they can, they almost have to abandon hope in order to live whatever life they're going to have in there. Then you come in and introduce hope again. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it takes away all of that, that coping that they've done. It it almost reverses it. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's a really great thing and a really scary thing all at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because like one of the things that really hit me as I was just listening to you talk was that we come to Leo obviously, because we want to know his story and we're going to ask him to recount like the worst moments of his life when he was 21 years old, right? Mm. Searching for Michelle, can't find her anywhere, ultimately finding her, the depression of that that follows, and then like getting arrested for this and being convicted for her murder. And, you know, one time he reminded me, you know, just Gilbert, pick, you know, you've gone on to write books, you have this life that you've, you know, living, you're living in a big city, you're free. You know, imagine if, someone at the age of 21, who you were at the age of 21, that's all anybody wanted to talk to you about is that part of your life when you're 21. I was like, I wouldn't even want that. And I, you know, I didn't get convicted of anything, but like you, if you went back to my, you know, it's really adolescence and you go back to that time and say, we're going to just talk about who you were as that in the worst moment of your life. Like I wouldn't want that. And he said, that's Mm -hmm. what my life is like. It's just all defined by this case. And you know, it's, it's exhausting for him to, to sit down with us for three hours, talk about, all his hopes and dreams being, you know, dashed in this horrible moment. And then, okay, we're going to take our tape. Good luck, Leo. And, you know, he goes back to his cell and he lives with that for days and it takes him to a very dark place. And that's the thing that, you know, I've had to learn to understand because it didn't quite, 
you know, really occur to me in the moment. Yeah. Is this the first uh, story that you've done that involved somebody's – and I, I touched on it earlier, but I want to mention it again. 2012, uh, the book that you won the Pulitzer Prize for is called uh, Devil in the Grove, uh, about four young black boys that were convicted of raping a white woman in Florida. Um, and by saying that, that, that was from 1949. Right. Um, but as I answered my own question with that. So you worked, it was a wrongful conviction story, um, but you didn't have quite the access to everybody then because the story was from the 40s. Yeah, right. So by the time I started, um, all four of the defendants were dead already. Um, um, so I did have some people to interview. There's one lawyer that was there. Also, the alleged victim in the case was still around because she was 17 at the time. Um, uh-huh. She decided not to talk to me, and her words to me were, let, let sleeping dogs lie. She didn't mm-hmm. want to revisit this. You know, which I think I thought was really unfortunate because I actually had a lot more sympathy than for her because I didn't think you know a seventeen year old was responsible for this. This was really the yeah. men in her life, the, including the sheriff and the prosecutor, who sort of took that story from them. So yeah, I didn't really have a lot of experience dealing with the wrongly convicted um, and researching, uh, finding you know imprisoned, falsely imprisoned men, that kind of thing, because uh, everybody was dead at the time. So, I, but I did have experience w- with the cases. I understood. Florida justice. Um, so that, that helped, but yeah. You know. Well, before we move into this, to the, the story and the, this actual case, cause I want to break that down. And we had, I, I told everybody in Jason's episode, which is going to air two weeks before yours, you better binge it after Jason's because I'm going to try to get some spoilers for <laughs> to talk about <laughs> some things that'll be spoilers in this one. Um, oh, yeah. real quick, before we get into that, I just, I just want to point out some, um, some great journalistic work that I've seen here in my notes from, uh, Erica, it does say here, Quote, I'm pretty sure he has a dog. Uh, that's the, some of the, the, the fabulous <laughs> investigative work. journalism but, coming over. Yeah. Here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do you or do you not have a dog? I do have a dog. I have a, a dog named Maisie who's uh, five, almost six years old now. Um, and so interestingly, when I started doing this, I, I ended up moving down to Florida because I was about uh-huh. to start a fellowship in the fall at the New York Public Library. And so I knew I had like four months. I said, you know what? I'm just going to, who wants to be in Florida in the summer? I don't, but this is the only time I have to do it. I'm going to start this case. And so I moved down there and just took my dog and basically just rented a house down there. And then Kelsey met me down there and we worked on the case all together with this dog there. Um, so <laughs> that became our family pet. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> So she's a mascot. For yeah, the, uh, pretty much. For the story. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So tell us about about this story. This is this is all about the murder of Michelle Schofield and what I believe to be, and I think you too, the the wrongful conviction of her husband Leo. Um, so tell tell us about the case and whatever you're comfortable sharing about the the process and the things that you uncovered through the podcast. Yeah, it's one of these strange cases. Like I I was doing a book talk for Devil in the Grove in the summer of uh, 2018. So like, you know, four years ago, a little more than four years ago. And um, at, when I got done, I was talking about my book. This judge came up to me. It was a judicial conference. And he handed me this card. And on the back of his card, he wrote Leo Schofield and his prison number and said, not just wrongfully convicted, he's an innocent man. And I remember I went out to dinner with some um, public defenders and I passed this around. I said, hey, you know, a judge just handed me this at a conference. What do you think of this? And they were all the same reaction. They were all like, a judge gave you this? Are you kidding me? He wrote this? They're not supposed to talk about, you know, active cases. And then it got passed around and there was one judge from Polk County or one public defender from Polk County. 
And he looked at it and he said, I know this case. You should call him. And that kind of tipped me off. Like something's going on with this case. I'd never heard of it before. So when I got back to New York, I started, um, I, I, you know, called Judge Cup, uh, Judge Scott Cup. And, you know, I said, hey, you gave me your card and I want to talk to you about this case. And, uh, you know, he went through the whole thing. And basically, he's just telling me this story about this, you know, hard rock metal guitarist, Leo Schofield. Back in 1987, his wife disappears. Uh, Leo f- searching for her frantically for several days until they find her body uh, in the water. Um, and she's been, you know, she's been stabbed um, to death. And, you know, he's telling me about this. He's telling me it's just it's a typical wrongful conviction. You can see all the, you know, earmarks of a wrongful conviction. But then he says, but there's something really interesting about this. 17 years after Leo was, you know, convicted of this crime, they found some fingerprints in the car that Michelle was driving when she disappeared. And they came back and matched to this killer who lived about a mile away from Leo. He's in prison for another murder that he's committed. And and so all of a sudden you had this new evidence. And so when I heard that, I was like, all right, this is kind of interesting. And, and so he started walking me through the whole case and it takes place in the eighties in Florida. And, um, you know, he, he said to me, the one thing he said to me, because I said, look, I don't know how long it's going to take me because I have a fellowship coming up. I have a book that I'm working on and I could just feel his deflation in his, in his voice and he said, just do me a favor, read the trial transcript. That's all I ask. Just read the trial transcript. And I said, all right, I'll agree to do that. And it's, you know, it's 2000 pages and right. I figure I'll start reading, you know, and sure enough, like I did, I got really hooked on this. I'm like, wait, this guy, these witnesses are all contradicting themselves. And then the prosecutors tying it together as if they weren't contradicting themselves. And mm-hmm. I kind of got hooked on it. And at that point I said, you know what? I'm really interested. I want to know more. Yeah, and so so this was 1987, right? Right, right. In in uh, in in Florida, and it's you've got 21 year old Leo is married to 18 year old Michelle. She he's what a band practice. She calls him on the from a payphone, says she's going to come pick him up, and never shows up. She never shows and up, and it was like you know just a few miles away. So it was like, yeah. And once she'd called, Leo said like once she called, then I knew she was coming. She disappeared before and never made any phone calls. But in this particular instance, she did call and say, "I'll be right there." So they were mm-hmm. expecting her in like ten minutes or so. But then like a half hour passes, an hour, two hours. Um, and they're starting to get really concerned now. And finally, Leo calls his dad and they go out searching. They're searching with friends for the next three days. They find her car on the side of a highway, abandoned. And so what they do, when once they find it on this highway, they work backwards from that spot, trying to go back to the restaurant where she worked. Mm-hmm. And that next morning, uh, they find her body floating in this canal um, about a mile and a half from, from you know where the restaurant was, where she worked. Yeah, and it, it's insane that the the key piece of evidence all comes from an offhanded conversation that Leo's dad had Ugh. with it was a, with an it was with an off duty officer, right? You know, he talked to a couple different people. He had what you know this premonition. He said so when they broke up to search for the body after the car was found, they they sort of separated and had different sections that they were all searching, and they would all meet in the middle. Um, and at one point, Leo's father actually finds the body. And, you know, he, he flags down a truck, they get the police there, he's, he's distraught, and he starts telling the story that God led him to the body, like he had a vision from God. Uh, well, mm-hmm. you know, he never said anything about this vision 
before, you know, because they were all together, right. you know, like they, they were sp- splitting up places to go to. And it was, you know, a, a methodical search for three days. But after he finds the body, he makes this comment like, you know, God led me to the body and, and all this. And that got, ended up being used against Leo as like, well, this is the man who's responsible for your alibi. Like what, how does it make sense that he actually found the body and he had this premonition and they kind of spun it to make it sound like he had this premonition beforehand when really it was mm-hmm. just a story that he said afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's mind boggling that that's the thing. Cause there's no evidence to, to convict Leo or even suggest that he had anything to do. In fact, he's the one that called 911 reported her missing. Right. Uh, yeah. There, there's all the evidence in the world to suggest that he's out looking for her for his wife he's getting upset that the police aren't finding his wife mm-hmm. and then they finally find him and because his dad made this comment they lock into him he ends up getting convicted and you hear all about the trial and the all that stuff on the in the podcast but then as as Gilbert mentioned earlier so then they find out that they found this fingerprint in the car years before right and and it was 17 years later they finally they run through through an APHIS database or some somehow or another they end up getting this hit from this guy named Jeremy Scott. Yeah, and that's the fascinating part because, you know, I mean, this is the part of the podcast that's kind of strange when you think about it. But, you know, after Leo loses all his appeals, he settles in. He's in, he's in prison for like five or six years. And, you know, he's trying to make the most of himself. He gets his degree. He's got a job teaching in, in as a teacher's aide in the prison. And he meets a social worker who's a little bit older than him, um, you know, this tall blonde woman named Chrissy. And they actually fall in love in the prison and they end up getting married and they've been married for almost 30 years now. Um, But she's the one who gets obsessed with Leo's case and starts going over this because, you know, Leo says, look, I'm innocent, but every inmate says that I'm, you know, I don't want to play any games with you. You can look into it yourself. Uh, I'm not going to try and convince you it. And she does look into it and she starts doing what I did. She read the transcript and she Mm -hmm. starts finding evidence that was never tested, which is those fingerprints. And she ends up getting them tested through a friend in a, in a law enforcement Mm -hmm. agency. And they come back and match this, you know, known killer who lived right down the street, basically from where Leo and Michelle lived. And so this, this person is now connected to the crime and this is Jeremy Scott. Yeah. And, and the, the, the short version of that story is no one seemed to care. This guy's a convicted killer uh, and, and is, was brought up on charges for murder prior to this. Uh, they the prosecution did everything they could do to explain it away. Basically saying, well, he, he found the car after it was abandoned or after she was murdered and just tried to steal the stereo out of it. Right. Uh, and it, it's, it's so, you wish that this is something that just happened in the eighties and nineties, but like I'm dealing with a case right now that we have something very similar. We just discovered throughout the working on this case that there were again, very flimsy evidence convict these two teenagers and then we find out that the victims, it's a crazy case where there's a triple homicide. Two people were murdered inside the house and the house burned down. So there's no evidence there. Ugh. The third victim was actually found burning in a wheelbarrow outside. Oh, well, we find out that there's DNA, at least two full profiles. It says on the bottom of the sheet, CODIS ready, like solid DNA profiles on her ankles. So we're like, well, there's your killer right there. Well, they tested it against the convicted and people that they thought they could, and it doesn't match anybody that 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 they have in you know that they that was connected to the case, and so they just let it go. 
Yeah. They just said, oh, it must be, it must be transfer. And then people make the arguments. So I was, as I was listening to your podcast, I'm literally having people make arguments about that evidence in our case about how, oh, well, you know, socks. She could have walked in somebody's living. She had just taken a shower and gotten dressed right before this. So she, you know, put on dirty. Well, you know, DNA can survive laundry. She could have walked somewhere. She could have. And it's, it's, it's the, the, the thing is exactly what happened with Jeremy Scott and Leo's case is, you have people that have started with a conclusion that Leo's guilty, and then they're looking for ways to make evidence fit that theory and finding ways to explain anything away that doesn't fit. And it's mm-hmm. it's maddening right. to deal with it. You know, for you know, in our case, it's this, you know all the reasons why why this DNA doesn't matter. And in Leo's case, it's all the reasons that this fingerprint doesn't matter because they just they've already set their mind on on the conclusion, and it's it's. Like I said, it, it drives you absolutely insane. And I, I've posed people qu- the question to people in our case of, if you didn't know about this one thing that makes you think that these two guys are guilty, if that wasn't involved, if you were just starting from scratch and looked at the case and found this DNA, what would you think? Obviously, that's the killer. Right. Same mm-hmm. thing with, mm-hmm. with Leo's case. Yeah. If, if you didn't have the dad's premonition and the cops just were searching her car, and, hey, we found a fingerprint in the car. Look, it's a violent offender who belongs to the fingerprint. It has no other connection to right. the victim, no other reason for it to be there, yeah. Yeah. That's where the case goes, and that would have been the easiest conviction of this prosecutor's life because you could look at this yeah. guy and go, oh, you know, the, the, the same office tried him for a murder like a year and a half earlier, and <laughs> right. he beat it, but they were absolutely yeah. convinced that he was the one. And so why why did they never just take those fingerprints from that car and just sort of say, all right, back then there was no APHIS system, but let's compare it to like known violent offenders in the area. If you did that, you know, this, this kid lived a mile away from where the car, you know, from where Mm -hmm. the the body was found, it would have come right back. They knew about it. In fact, it was the same detectives that investigated. Um, I think part of the problem you have in exactly what you were describing is the prosecutor who prosecuted Leo also prosecuted Jeremy Scott and tried to send him to the electric chair. So he's uh-huh. the one who has to make the decision, you know, about these fingerprints. And, you know, this, these fingerprints are going to screw up his conviction of, of Leo's case. And so, like, this is the exact wrong person to be, you know, closing the investigation yeah. of Jeremy Scott. Mm-hmm. He's invested in the case. Yeah. And that's so, so it's so hard with wrongful conviction cases is once you get to that point, like, I, I, I would – I want to believe – just so that I can sleep at night, that if that DA knew those fingerprints matched Jeremy Scott a week after her, Michelle's body was found, that they would have went after Jeremy Scott. Yeah, right. You want to believe that, and I and I do believe that. But when they've already gone through the process of telling everybody, no, 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 we're right, and this is the guy, and you convict him, and then you take 17 years of his life away. Yeah. There's just something that happened. That's, I mean, it, it's, it's like some kind of sociopathy that's just like, I cannot – I cannot admit that this could have been the killer because that means I made a mistake all those years ago. And I'm just right. I'm willing to let this guy rot in prison. Yeah. And 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 oh by the way, not for nothing, Jeremy Scott killed somebody else later. Right, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's that's the thing about, you know, this tough yeah. on crime kind of environment. Like, well, you know, you think you're being tough on crime by leaving the one person in prison that you think may be guilty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. but he's not. And so by 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 leaving things as is, Jeremy Scott goes off to somebody else. And so that was a big part of our podcast is just meeting all the people 
after they blew the conviction of Jeremy Scott in that 1985 murder, all the mm-hmm. other people whose lives he damaged, you know, by sexually assaulting, by killing people, um, mm-hmm. families of them, all these people that we talked to, it just ripples out this like wave of destruction. Um, and, you know, I think about this, you know, and Jeremy Scott ended up confessing, you know, years after, because he right. thought he was, you know, going to get a deal from the prosecutor on some kind of parole thing that, that didn't happen. So he ended up saying, you know, like, all right, well, now I'm coming clean. That that prosecutor lied to me. And he ended up confessing to this murder. Now, just think about this. You know, the, the normal, well, not, it's not normal, but one way that you see it is sometimes a prisoner will confess to a crime that he's committed. All right. So let's just say someone in a prison in North Florida says, by the way, I killed someone in 87. I never got caught for it. I got away with this murder. You know, the first thing the state's going to say is, well, that's great. Anybody can say that. Are you forensically tied to the crime scene? And in this case, Jeremy is. And so to me, it's like, it's kind of a no brainer. You have a confession, someone who's confessed multiple times to this murder in detail. And he's also forensically tied to the crime scene the same way he is, he is in three other murders that he committed. So can we look at this and look at who Leo is and who Jeremy is and figure this out? Yeah, and and that's that was the most shocking thing was when you know that that wasn't even enough to overturn mm-hmm. the conviction, and I don't want to give too much more away than that because I want I want people to listen to it. But I'll, I'll say this that that his I was still like mm, what's I'm not a hundred percent sold on the confession until your when he talked to you and Kelsey and you hear him and he gives the and and gives some details that. Could not have possibly been known by anybody but the killer, and, and and you just want to slam your head against the wall that poor Leo is still sitting in prison Ugh. for this crime while this guy, who's by all accounts not a good guy, right. he just there's something about it where he's just like, okay, I'm willing to tell the truth about this thing. It's not going to affect him. He's in prison the whole time. He's not getting anything for it, but he gives the details that prove that he's the one that did this yeah. and Leo's still in prison and it's, it's completely tragic. Your storytelling uh, and your reporting and the investigative work, both with you and Kelsey is absolutely fantastic. And I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave that right there so people can go check out the rest of it. His name is Gilbert King and the podcast is called bone Valley. Uh, the entire season, there's nine episodes. They're all out. It just ended in November. So you can shut this off and just binge the whole thing. I highly recommend you do just that. Gilbert King and Bone Valley. Gilbert, thanks so much. It's 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 an honor and a, ple- a pleasure to meet you, and I appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. Anytime. I had a really good time with you guys. It's really This is a great show you have here, so thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Gilbert. Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Kelly Barron's Brink. Our production manager and co-host is Erica Cantor. Music and show artwork was created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com and episode artwork is created by John Hayes. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. 
Make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. And thank you so much for listening. And make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge. Thank you.